Magnificence of the Ambersons began in 1873. Their splendor lasted throughout all the years that saw their Midland town spread and darken into a city. In that town in those days, all the women who wore silk or velvet knew all the other women who wore silk or velvet, and everybody knew everybody else's family horse and carriage. The only public conveyance was the streetcar. A lady could whistle to it from an upstairs window, the car would halt at once and wait for her. While she shut the window, put on her hat and coat, went downstairs, found an umbrella, told the girl what to have for dinner, and came forth from the house. Too slow for us nowadays, because the faster we're carried, the less time we have to spare. So what is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real Episode 513. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles who protect everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today, after entirely too long of an absence from the podcast, we have podcaster and filmmaker Martin Kessler returning to the show to talk about a topic that I've never really been able to explore in full and nearly destroyed the podcast early on when I tried to do an episode about Orson Welles with my co-founders and they weren't really getting into the spirit of things and they were kind of giving me some shit about how much they hate Orson Welles and I was like, well then fuck Wrong Real and fuck the two of you. So hopefully now, you know, five years later... I'm now that sure I'm that much, won't be an issue yeah. on this episode. <laughs> but I'm going to try and approach this episode a little bit more calmly because Martin Kessler is a very wise and profound observer of of film and film history. So Mr. Kessler, welcome back to Wrong Real. Uh, it's great to be back. I hadn't even realized I was gone so long. It feels like yesterday. Well, if you really want to blow your mind, we are knocking at the door of having almost been five years since you first came on the podcast to talk about Amadeus back in the, I think, November of 2015. But you're still somehow only like 11, so you don't seem to be aging. Right? The rest of us seem to be decaying right before our eyes. What's your secret? Uh, I, I have no idea. I'll, I'll just keep going until I burn out, I guess. Excellent. Well, enjoy your youth while it lasts. It is not forever. But catch people up. What have you been up to in terms of your podcast and your filmmaking? I saw that you recently posted an episode with the world's most rabid, diehard film freak that any of us know, the great Tony Stella. Oh, um, yeah. On Flixways Canada, I had Tony Stella on to talk about films that are based on Vincent van Gogh or inspired by him and biographical films, Akira Kurosawa's dreams, and just, you know, amazing, amazing filmmaking names come up. Minelli, Altman, just, you know, huge giants. So that, that was a really fantastic episode. Um, now, what's your approach when you're recording with Tony? Because for me, I just throw a question out there and then I just sit back. I just and let I, him rip, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can go for a walk around the block. I can, like, check my mail. I can do it and I come in. He's like, he's like, God, you still you still going berserk but i love it that's it's the it's the tony stella show oh no i i, I just i'm in awe whenever he speaks I, I learn something new and it makes me think about something a little bit differently and he can actually 
increase my appreciation for things. So that's that's exactly what I love. Well, also what I love about recording Tony, he doesn't bring in the same facts that everybody else has at their fingertips. If you record with mm-hmm. podcasters, typically people go to Wikipedia or they go to IMDb Trivia or they do a little bit of research, but everybody's basically operating on the same bullet points and regurgitating the same set of facts. And I'm going to kind of do the same thing today, talking about Magnificent Ambersons because this is history that's been well and thoroughly mined by film historians like Joseph McBride and Simon Callow mm-hmm. many times over, but... Fuck it, it's our Even turn. Even on uh, Flixwise, uh, we've had Joseph McBride on talking yeah, about Orson Welles. Yeah, he so. was. A, I know that yeah. he was a Lady P's teacher back at, back in the yep. day, like when they when before she even got the podcast underway. But yeah, Joseph McBride. I've been reading his books since I was an undergrad. I think I discovered his work as a third year at UVA. But I saw him do his presentation of Wellsiana at the Film Forum here in New York. But yeah, when it comes to knowledge of Wells, there's like. There's like a holy trinity, or I guess it's a handful of people like Peter Bogdanovich, Joseph McBride, probably David Thompson, Simon Callow's probably written the most books. But there's a certain, like, there's like a go to pantheon of people who are experts on the topic. Absolutely. And it, sometimes it's a little bit intimidating to want to talk about Orson Welles and some of his films because you know there's people who are so knowledgeable and so expert about his films that it's like, ah, I, I don't know how to insert myself into the conversation, but I really do love his films. And uh, the one we're going to be talking about, maybe especially, I don't know if it's quite my favorite, but I really, really love this film. And uh, thinking back to some of the other episodes that we've had together, um, movies like The Swimmer or On the Silver Globe, I, I think maybe I'm attracted to movies that have scars on them where you can see their scars i think this definitely falls into that category really cool youtube video top 10 (laughs) scarred movies you can talk about greed or the wild bunch or magnificent ambersons but there's lots of films that have troubled production histories and with the older films sometimes in the 20s 30s and 40s the sad reality is there is no director's cut there is no extended version there's no recreation i mean every once in a while something will happen like with metropolis how they found like a 22 minute longer cut in some Mm -hmm. vault somewhere or with, uh, with I think it's the Passion of uh, Joan of Arc. Oh, yeah, the Passion of Joan of Arc. The, the, yeah, the found in a film. mental institution or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, they like found that. in a mental yeah. institution somewhere. So stranger things do happen. But yeah, Magnificent Ambersons is definitely one of those movies that is the, the quite literally the lost arc where film historians have been hoping for and praying for a, a final version of this film for decades. But the reality is RKO very deliberately and willfully destroyed it so I, i've long since given up hope i know some people say oh well, there's probably a work print still down in brazil somewhere i'm like yeah some, some probably, people hope for that yeah. uh, there's some rumors i'm i uh, stranger things have happened yeah that's true you know i mean like uh wells too much johnson a lot of people thought that was lost forever true. and that was disturbing. turned up absolutely so if it if it does show up someday i won't be completely shocked but at the same time i'm i'm skeptical that they'll ever find it i think as of right now, we sort of have to make do with the version that we have. Yeah. I mean, this is not the other side of the wind where we knew where the canisters were. It was just a giant legal riddle, removing yeah. them and getting them out into the world and trying to do some form of rough, rough assembly. And even there with the other side of the wind, I'm not entirely convinced that I'm ever going to regard that as his a real version. Because Wells there's film. scenes yeah. that feel like Orson Welles' scenes, and I know which scenes he finished because he presented them when he was accepting his award at the uh, at the AFI Lifetime Achievement Award. And you can tell when you're watching it what it, what is like an approximation of Wells versus actual Wells. So I'm glad that the footage is there. But yeah, I'm glad I, it's out there. I I actually like I got more out of the making of absolutely. documentary that they released at the same time. Like to to me that was more substantial in a way and. Looking at the other side of the wind for me, it was more like a 
okay, this is an idea of what the film would have been almost. I, I had to kind of give it that little asterisk when I was watching it. And Orson Welles, he has a number of films which are uh, non-finito. And in some cases, that's kind of attributed to him. Other times, it's external circumstances. Magnificent Ambersons kind of falls into a weird niche where the film was basically, it was all there, it was complete, and then it was just hacked to bits and then kind of destroyed while he was They took uh, it out off. back and they chopped it up. <laughs> right, while he was off in uh, South America. Yeah, I can't think of a single director who has as many compromised and kind of unfinished versions of his movies out there, which I think is part of the fascination for his fans because they're so... I mean, I always say this, he's my favorite persona in the history of movies, both in terms of his real life, his performances, his films. I just find every aspect of his career so fascinating. But from Magnificent Ambersons to Othello, which he shot in pieces, to mm -hmm. Chimes at Midnight, which took many, many, many years before it was thankfully and luckily restored and released. I, I, I thought we were never going to have the fully pristine version of Chimes at Midnight, but now people just take it for granted. But I think that yep. but as an undergrad in college, that's what really got me so obsessed with them was that I felt like I was Indiana Jones looking for lost ar archaeological, like, <laughs> like, like, basically like dig sites in order to try and find what little nuggets and fragments from his career that I could. And then, of course, with Don Quixote, which he never finished, there's yep. different scenes and fragments that are available. But he left kind of a trail of wreckage, and sometimes it was outside forces acting upon him. Sometimes it was Wells just being Wells and leaving some things <laughs> unfinished. Like, I mean, he was a very efficient, economical filmmaker. I, I hate this myth that he was this filmmaker who would just run away with his budgets and run away with his schedules. People who yeah. saw him on the set of like The Trial or Chimes at Midnight or Touch of Evil talk about just how fast and economical and how much preparation he would do and how he's, his long camera moves oftentimes would end up saving days, even if they took days to set up. So... But on the other hand, Wells well, was uh, kind of crazy. I think and, Magnificent Emerson's is kind of the one that started that myth about Wells being yeah. uh, going over budget and stuff, which turns out wasn't really true. I know like Joseph McBride did a little bit of research into this. And in the studio, RKO's internal notes, they showed that actually Wells finished uh, under budget, which they, they lied to him basically and said, oh, the film's over budget. You're spending all this money. And uh, probably Wells himself didn't even know for the rest of his life that he actually finished Magnificent Ambersons under budget. And, you know, looking at some of the conflict between him and uh, Stanley Cortez, the cinematographer, brilliant, brilliant cinematographer. Yeah, he one shot of the, Night one of the, the Hunter, yeah. One of the greats. But him and Wells didn't really get along, partly because he worked slowly. Yeah. So, uh, and Wells was very demanding, and he was they were doing some really complicated, beautiful yeah. work in this film. Where I don't know if there's a better director ever in terms of how, like the dance between camera movements and actors blocking and how they move through a scene and the way the camera responds. I mean, it's hard to, I mean, you could say like Max, I mean, Fools. not from that point of time, like yeah. I, I think like Max later Fools, on, I think it's probably the only one once it gets to stuff with the steady cam. Yeah, but you know, they talk about uh, Magnificent Ambersons having one of the first uh, full mag shots where you know they would have shot the whole role in the camera this uh, famous around 10 minute long take during the uh, ballroom scene that yeah. in the final version it's cut up so you don't have the long take actually you just see pieces of it and it's intercut which kind of you know ruins the idea of doing it all in one take yeah so it's one of the things that's so obvious it's like what are y'all fucking thinking by breaking this beautiful <laughs> shot up into pieces but i guess he also had had the the joy and the luxury of working with greg tolan on citizen kane and greg tolan was fast yeah. and he was spontaneous and he was clever and creative and he knew how to let orson welles kind of 
he gave him a little bit of leash to kind of run with, and then he would clean up behind him. But he loved the fact that Wells was so inexperienced and would do things like adjusting the lights when it wasn't his job and things like that. I think Greg yeah. Tolan, which is having so much fun just observing this precocious young man who had all the talent in the world. Because people need to remember that while Wells's latter part of his career was a struggle in a lot of ways, in his early 20s, he was a fucking, like, baller he was, oh, he was a machine yeah. yeah i mean uh he was making money hand over fist on the radio doing things like the shadow doing the mercury theater campbell suit playhouse where he did his first version of uh magnificent ambersons and of course he was killing it on broadway he made the cover of time magazine at 21 for his staging of julius caesar basically using nazi germany yeah. as the setting and doing the voodoo Macbeth up in uh, up in harlem I and mean, he was an awe-inspiring figure in his early 20s and i think greg tolan realized wow, like this is an opportunity to really do something special. And so once you've worked with Greg Toland, Stanley Cortez is just a, a different proposition altogether. Sure. Well, he tried to fire Cortez and Cortez was basically begging him not to fire him. So he kind of stuck him off to the second unit kind of photography or he said like, oh, okay, you set up the shots. And then, you know, Wells was off shooting stuff with either uh, Harry J. Wilde or Russell Meddy, who yep. would go on to shoot Touch of Evil, and then like they would just kind of come in and shoot their own thing. And so a lot of the photography you see in the film isn't Cortez's, really. And it's, uh, I mean, a lot of the photography, some of the photography isn't even uh, Wells by the end. You you get a couple shots from the reshoots inserted in, and it's, it's quite oh, noticeable sometimes. They when kill it's, me. It's the uh, last shot of the movie. It looks like... The- oh, this flat lighting. And the, the fact that they try to do, uh, that the dolly back to try to imitate wells's style a little bit just makes it all the more kind of obvious I, the one of the most glaring ones there's a scene with um uh, dolores costello and tim holt the, the mother and son and i guess uh, part of the idea was in the cutting down of the film and the reshoots they wanted to try to eliminate this sort of oedipal motif going on between them but uh, you know there's that one scene where um you know the, the scene where at the end she's petting his head but when they cut to the close-ups of her talking, it's completely different lighting setup. It's this like flat, brightly lit uh, lighting setup in in a scene that's like dark and shadowy, and it, it's so out of place that it just like screams reshoot. And it, that's sort of one of the things that's interesting about it is how obvious, in some ways, the the tampering is. It, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah, it's painful to watch once you know his style and you love his work, and you see something he didn't do. It just makes you want to tear your eyes out. But luckily, the first half is more or less something Wells could live with. And he watched it on TV with yeah. Henry about Jack Rom late hour. in life. And, yeah, and so on and so forth. But yeah, I remember even in college when my friends and I were just sitting around hammered. I would say, hey, let's throw in the first half hour of Magnificent Ambersons. And I guess they were being really patient with me that they would never say no. Like these are guys who probably would prefer to watch you know, Airplane or something fun or Big Lebowski. But they would just, I guess, indulge me. But that first half hour, basically up through the sleigh ride, it just plays, and it's an absolute joy to watch. And when you hear that voiceover narration written by Orson Welles, because he adapted this script by himself, it's just like, it's orgasms for the ears. During the earlier years of this period, while bangs and bustles were having their way with women, there were seen men of all ages to whom a hat meant only that rigid, tall, silk thing known to impudence as a stovepipe. But the long contagion of the derby had arrived. One season, the crown of this hat would be a bucket. Next, it would be a spoon. Every house still kept its boot jack, but high-top boots gave way to shoes and Congress gaiters, and these were played through fashions that shaped them now with toes like box ends and 
now with toes like the prows of racing shells. Trousers with a crease were considered plebeian. The crease proved that the garment had lain upon a shelf and hence was ready-made. With evening dress, a gentleman wore a tan overcoat, so short that his black coattails hung visible five inches below the overcoat. But after a season or two, he lengthened his overcoat till it touched his heels. And he passed out of his tight trousers into trousers like great bags. In those days, they had time for everything. Time for sleigh rides and balls and assemblies and cotillions and open house on New Year's and all-day picnics in the woods and even that prettiest of all vanished customs, the serenade. Of a summer night, young men would bring an orchestra under a pretty girl's window and flute, harp, fiddle, cello, cornet, and bass viol would presently release their melodies to the dulcet stars. All these beautiful turns of phrase, like the narration, that's where all the best dialogue is, really, this sort of poetic language and the sometimes these very haunting phrases that come up throughout. I, I, I love his narration throughout the film, even though he doesn't star in the movie. Some people thought maybe he could have, or in hindsight, I know he talked about like, ah, maybe I should have he acted in played the film. But I, I love Tim Holt. He was awesome in Treasure of Sierra Madre. He was great in uh, Stagecoach. I'm a big fan of Tim Holt. And he does a fine job as George. He has his moments. But Orson plays George on the radio show, and you can hear yes. he gets that George needs to be effete and kind of shrill and mm -hmm. kind of hysterical and overwrought. He's the ultimate spoiled brat. And Tim Holt is this macho, rugged, like cowboy actor who used to do all yeah. kinds, and he would do great stunts in movies. He's in the Treasure of Sierra Madre. Yeah. He's in like a lot of these tough guy movies. He, he just plays not, like he's in not a, a lot of the B westerns. He's probably got calluses yeah. on his hands, whereas George should have very smooth hands and very narrow shoulders. And I just you need Orson. As I, a young I just man. picture that Orson Welles baby face and thinking about uh, the character George Amberson Minifer as being this sort of man-child who's been completely spoiled and all of a sudden have to deal with the realities of life. I mean, there's a lot you can read into with the character as being, you know, maybe not exactly a stand-in for Wells, but you can understand why he would have identified with that character. And I, I think he identified with a lot of aspects of the uh, Booth Tarkington novel, which he adapted, like supposedly... I mean, his uh, his father, Dick Wells, knew Booth Tarkington. So either Orson Welles said that uh, part of Magnificent Ambersons was based on his father, or he believed that maybe he maybe it was in part. But I, I think he definitely saw a lot of himself in the George character and saw a lot of his um, family history in these characters. Yeah, Simon Callow says there's no evidence to suggest that... I mean, Wells throughout and late in life would tell a lot of stories about his life and his career yes. and some of them you can believe and some of them you can just enjoy <laughs> he had to tend to go yeah. with the, the print the legend sort of approach exactly to and, history. I, and i yeah. love every single story wells tells about his life whether it's true or false because he is the, uh, one of the world's great storytellers but simon callow who's wells's best biographer who's working on this fourth volume now the first three mm -hmm. are absolutely riveting reading says there's no evidence to suggest that booth talkington based any of the characters and particularly no. like yeah. you know the character um uh played by by um, Joseph Cotton on Wells' father. But Wells' father, 
He was a, a gambler, and he was wealthy, and he came from a bygone era, a simpler era, yeah. and Wells looked up to him in a lot of ways, and his father was an inventor. He, I think he invented some form of headlight that would go on a car. It was like a headlight for bicycles that got adapted to cars. So, like, somehow Wells, in his embellishments, was like, oh, yeah, my father tried to invent the automobile. Yeah, like, yeah, he, yeah. He, he just grew into that. And his father, Dick Wells, was somebody who, you know, he said, started life with a lot more money than he ended, and he felt yeah. very ashamed of that, and he basically drank himself to death and wells felt very guilty about there's that. a fine tradition like, of men do that people yeah. who take a large fortune <laughs> and they turn it into a small one and they he would like as wells would joke on the dick cavett show my father would lose money on all of his business projects and he would gain money by gambling and you know it just sounds like his father probably was a lot like george where he just <laughs> he yeah. saw he saw his fortunes dwindle maybe i guess we've been talking a while but maybe that's as good a place quote unquote to start wells sure. has this enormous almost unimaginable nostalgia for this bygone era, an era that may or may not have ever existed in the Midwest, these quiet small towns where you've got a family that in New York would be regarded as some sort of third-rate, like wannabe <laughs> yes. er er aristocrats, but in the context yep. of their community, they are royalty, and they've got the finest house in town, they own all the land, and this is a story about a family's diminishing prospects going into decay just getting smaller and smaller as the world mm -hmm. changes and darkens and spreads all around them. And people oftentimes compare it to uh, Chekhov's uh, play, The Cherry Orchard, which I read back in high school. And the, the comparison is very apt because you have this cherry orchard that's constantly being chopped down and being sold off to the riffraff as this aristocratic family kind of disintegrates into nothingness. And it's very bleak and it's very melancholy and very unusual or perhaps bad timing for this kind of material yes. when that the last day of shooting was basically the day that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and people were in the mood for technicolor musicals and westerns and excitement and adventure and suddenly comes this mammoth bleak two-hour movie about the decay of a midwestern aristocratic well, family in some ways it's very uh, like th there's other issues too that for instance the film deals with the industrial revolution and it has a very ambivalent attitude towards industry and to the progress that during world war ii america needed industry and you know needed men and women to go to factories and build stuff and we have to build battleships and it, it in a way it became uh, politically incorrect for an america that was heading into a war so i i think that was part of the issue as well rko they test screened it and they had supposedly the, this very disastrous test screening where people just didn't like it at all is it as bad as if not worse than <laughs> citizen kane it was one of the famous cards but <laughs> well some of them said it was the greatest film yeah. they had ever seen you know yeah. there was like multiple test cards that was like oh this is the best film ever and there's enough of the film that survives that you can still see that this and i think like citizen kane i can kind of understand how that could come from a young filmmaker it's incredibly impressive coming from a young filmmaker it's visually bombastic and very ambitious but I, I think i'm sort of more surprised that magnificent ambersons came from a young filmmaker because it's subtler and it's sort of reflective and looking back to the past that nostalgia that you mentioned i mean right from the get-go those opening know, nine minutes or so, so the sort of prologue where you have the um the pale vignetting and it, it just feels like images from the etchings of an old book. Yeah. Or it feels and, like, like a late in life Bergman or a late in life John Ford would make a movie like that. It feels like yeah. Orson just was an old soul, but it feels like, I mean, there are times there are shots with major Amberson 
where it almost looks like a scene out of Wild Strawberries or something like that. Like, but it yes. feels like an old soul made this movie instead of like a twenty-seven-year-old really guy yeah. who was like boning Rita Hayworth and <laughs> painting, <laughs> painting the town red on on a nightly basis. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it's incredibly mature. And I, I think that's one of the most surprising things about it. And that's one reason I, I still really love the film is a lot of that subtlety survives. And it, it's such an interesting kind of dynamic where on one hand, the story is incredibly easy to summarize. Like you said, it's a wealthy family going into decline, but it's also there's love triangles. There's this industry aspect. There's a lot kind of going in the mechanics. And I love that the uh, the economics... This is one thing that was cut out. I actually think, I, I mean, I have zero doubt that the uh, the final, the original version was uh, superior, but I, like a part of me likes the 88-minute uh, runtime and it li- and I like how a lot of these um, economic aspects of the family that were originally fleshed out are just reduced to little tiny details. And it's like... Like uh, the deed to the land. Uh, we know that the, 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 deed, the deed is missing. It was supposed to be left for Isabel, but no one can find it. And that's yeah. one of the big problems. But they mentioned it for like five seconds. And it's one of the reasons that they end up losing the house and having it turned into a boarding house, which you never really get to appreciate in this cut. But in the original no, that, cut, I mean, that's, that's Fanny one of the at the end losses. is living... Yeah. And almost kind of in squalor with a lot of other people who in the yeah. converted Amberson home that's now been divided up into a million little rooms and all of its glory is faded and that sort of thing. So you get little bits and pieces, but I mean the book is there. The movie is very faithful to the book. The screenplay, the shooting script that like right before they started shooting, that is also available. The one thing that we'll never get, sadly though, is that boarding house scene with Fanny toward yeah. the end because it wasn't in the book. It's Wells' contribution and it's barely even hinted at in the shooting script so as i was reading the shooting script in preparation for the episode i was like all right now mm-hmm. i'm finally gonna get the big fantasy scene that well says was yeah, the heart it, of the whole picture with the and it's not even in there hit by like, the car Fuck! and the writing like, the letter yeah. i know <laughs> well like that scene you know this basic idea like fanny she's almost the only one left of the ambersons at the very end i mean george is technically still around but it, it's like him and uh Aunt Fanny, and neither one's really an Amberson, which is sort of funny too. How like the Ambersons yeah, at the end, they're yeah. all Minifords, you know. And, like the, how George tries to kind of keep that, like, oh, I'm George Amberson Minifer, and like try to keep that title. But it, it's like, uh, you know, Shriver's trying to be Kennedys or something. It, it's a little bit like that. Just the name itself has to hold some value in this community. But at the end, when it's just Aunt Fanny, and uh, you know, she had loved the. Eugene Morgan character, the Joseph Cotton's role in the film, she had a crush on him, and you know, instead he was going after uh, Isabel, the uh, Dolores Costello character. But at the end, like she's kind of the only one left, and she's in the boarding house, and he comes to visit her, and it would have been she, you know, there's no emotion left in her really. She's just been beaten down by life, and there's no communication between them at the very end. And he sort of says goodbye, and you hear the record playing, and he walks out into the city and leaves and you would have had this amazing um special effects shot of yeah, the composite city shot of the city how it's, how it's polluted now and it's grim and it's dark and the city's completely metamorphosized from this quaint small like rural town to an industrial like metropolis and yes. it's hinted at br- briefly in the film one of my favorite passages and just because it's narrated by orson is when george is walking home and is taking in all the details of the city George Amberson Minifer walked homeward slowly through what seemed to be the strange streets of a strange city. For the town was growing and changing. It was heaving up in the middle, incredibly. 
waves were spreading incredibly. And as it heaved and spread, it befouled itself and darkened its sky. This was the last walk home he was ever to take up National Avenue to Amberson Edition and the big old house at the foot of Amberson Boulevard. Tomorrow they were to move out. Tomorrow everything would be gone. Oh, I love that where it's fading and it almost like I, I did a little side by side the other day where it, it reminded me of um, the beginning of a razor head. Just yeah. seeing the city look so domineering and kind of uh, gray and ugly and how these images sort of overlap and are, are actually kind of disturbing in a way there are aspects of the film I think are really disturbing and, and stay, stick with you. Like, uh, I mean, the, the scene with uh, Major Amberson. I always call it a death scene, even though he doesn't technically die in it. You're just sort of assuming like, okay, that's the last time you see him. But, you know, when they're trying to ask him about the deed to the house and his his mind's already kind of gone, you know, maybe senile, but he's also sort of profound at the same time. And he's talking about like, oh, man came from the earth and the earth came from the sun. And it's like, it, thank you, you've you know, been very makes helpful. me think of like uh, <laughs> J.M.W. Turner talking about like, oh, God is light right before he died. But like his face just looks so like hollowed out and i know like richard bennett who played major amberson he died not like immediately after i think he died maybe like a year and a half or two years after the role but like apparently at that point his memory wasn't that great so wells had to feed him his lines but like he's so perfect in that part just the the look on his face and him sort of muttering these things that are maybe nonsense or maybe profound but I love it when George early on as a little kid gets in trouble for saying all these horrible things and uh, he refers to somebody as a liar and Major Amos is like, George, you mustn't say liar. And then like five seconds later when George is talking about how so-and-so wouldn't be allowed except for in the side door at their home and Major Amerson just starts cracking up. So like on one hand, <laughs> he's trying to discipline this unruly little brat. On the other hand, he's delighted by what a little princely terror his, his grandson yeah. is turning into. And yeah, it's... It's no secret as to how George becomes the man he becomes. And I guess that's part of the, like, the joy of the movie early on is whether you are rooting for his downfall or just laughing at all the absurd things yep. he says. But a buddy of mine who ended up being a yacht broker later on when I was in college, <laughs> when we were watching the scene where he's talking to Lucy and she's like, what do you want to be? And when, essentially, when you grow up, it's like, oh, a yachtsman. And then they go dancing away. <laughs> and my friend Ned would just go, he was just cheering and screaming. And so there's a lot to enjoy about yeah. George. Where he's like, I will be shot. I will. I certainly will be shot. Like, you know, and everybody's yelling at him because I love how after they've thrown this grand ball and everybody's gone home and he's just tormenting his entire family. He's tormenting Aunt Fanny. He's, he's, he just, yeah. he, he makes a lot of noise. He throws his weight around and everybody kind of likes him and kind of hates him. And the, the goodbye by Ray Collins, his uncle, as they part ways at the end is incredible because he's giving oh, him praise and insulting him. That's like going another back great and forth, scene. Back and forth. It's you should so have been good. hanged. You should have been <laughs> hanged. And, and then like, there's that little line at the end where he's like, oh yeah, I'll pay you back or something like that. Like right before he leaves and you realize like, oh, he's borrowed money from him. The, the honest Jack Amberson, the uh, he was a politician, and they're like, "Oh, it's always good to have a congressman in the family or Absolutely. something like that." But you know, just him kind of like uh, at the very end, this honorable 
congressman like okay i'm gonna borrow some money from my nephew and fuck off and that's it he's the only person from the original radio production who made it into the movie uh campbell playhouse from 1938 to 1940 mm-hmm. they did a, a ton of mercury theater productions and it's incredible just how many classics Orson and his, and his gang were bringing to life, but the original version had Walter Houston instead of Joseph Cotton, yep. and then you also had Mary Astor, you had Everett Sloan, obviously is another part of the Orson gang, and you had uh, Walter Houston's wife, Nan Sunderland, playing right. um, playing Isabel, and it's, it's only an hour, and it's super fast, but in spite of only being an hour, I guess the first big warning sign for this project was when Orson played it for George Schaefer, who was running RKO at the time, and George Schaefer <laughs> fell asleep during the recording. Yes. So maybe they should have never necessarily given this a green light and done something a little more commercial, but it did have music by Bernard Herman. And for people who like old school radio and mm-hmm. people, I mean, in the late thirties, goddamn Orson did so many cool things in radio, but I-, I found it absolutely delightful. The makers of Campbell's Duke present the Campbell Playhouse. Orson Welles, producer. Tonight again, our scene is America. America at the turn of the century in the days that saw the rise, the reign, and the decline of the Magnificent Ambersons. The book was a bestseller, but the Magnificent Ambersons is something better than that, better than a bestseller that still sells. It lives on as the truest, cruelest picture of the growth of the Middle West and the liveliest portrait left to us of the people who made it grow. It's better than a good book. It's Booth Tarkington's best. And we'll do our best right on the radio tonight, and luckily, we have with us a great American actor to help. An actor who, in the living theater and in motion pictures, has created a notable gallery of American portraits ranging from Ringlard and Elmer the Great to Sinclair Lewis's Dodsworth. A gallery which includes the simplest of American mortals and even two presidents, the legendary chief executive of Gabriel over the White House and Mr. Abraham Lincoln himself. You've guessed his name. It's Walter Houston. And what blew my mind was just how many lines and beats and crucial bits of narration are almost copied word for word verbatim from that. Um, I've never read the novel. I'm assuming a lot of these turns of phrase come from Booth Tarkington. But for people mm-hmm. who love the film, I strongly recommend the, uh, the radio show because it is, it's short, but at least it's Wells' complete interpretation of the story without compromise. Yeah, it's, it's really great. The film, too... Like it, it is kind of a weirdly easy to digest eighty-eight minutes. Like it, it flies by, and I, I don't know. Like there is that sort of subgenre of the endless family saga. I always think of it. And one thing I like about Magnificent Ambersons is, is it just like blasts through the story. And you know, there are little details you have to pick up, and uh, it's like it, it wastes no time. Which in some ways, the, the story about this fleeting nostalgia and like how quickly you lose the past it actually feels right for you know people assume that if they ever restore it it would be the full um you know over two hour version that they uh screened but like i I think wells wasn't necessarily done editing it at that point he was still sending notes up from brazil i sort of wondered if if he had gone back or if he had never gone to south america 
if he would have cut it down to a shorter time span, I don't know. I mean, thankfully, they didn't cut it any shorter. I know some of the scenes were potentially on the chopping block. Like, uh, you know, there's there's one scene with uh, Tim Holt that supposedly, uh, uh, you know, they almost cut out that... Uh, oh, who was it? Uh, director of Zulu. Cy <laughs> uh, Enfield. Uh, who was just working at RKO at the time. He saw that they were going to cut out this this one scene and he basically cried and uh, made a big deal out of it and that convinced them to leave this scene in but they, they were pretty pretty ruthless as far as cutting it down to its barest bones yeah and, george schaefer pleaded with rko to save the material said look you can play it at the moment yeah. you can play it wherever but just save the material and yeah. george schaefer who was out on his ass because it was george schaefer who had recruited wells and brought him in rko did not have the limitless resources of an mgm or a paramount or warner brothers rko was rko was you know, a smaller, uh, smaller one, and eventually got absorbed by by Paramount. Mm-hmm. They could not just do these giant vanity projects and, and and eat them the way another studio would. And so, when this movie, when they, when the, I guess when RKO panicked, they were like, yep. "All right, Wells is on his way out. His whole gang is on his way out. George Schaefer's on his way out." And they even changed the phrase something like "showmanship, not genius." Moving forward, yeah, that's the slogan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they were just. They were so over the, I guess, the Wells experiment because it was Citizen Kane, which had basically broken even and had gotten an Academy Award for uh, Best Original Screenplay. But they had been all mm-hmm. that chaos with William Randolph Hearst. And I guess RKO had just had assumed, we're bringing in this boy genius from New York. He's going to make us vast sums of money. And all he's doing yep. is bringing us headaches and problems. So they just they kind of thrown up their hands in despair at that point. And you have Robert Wise there who's got an eye on becoming a director at a certain point. He started making movies like The Setup shortly thereafter. And Robert Wise obviously went on to make many uh, great movies, things like sure. Star Trek Motion Picture. Filmmaker. Yep. And it's a weird thing where Robert Wise is probably one of the kindest, nicest human beings that ever walked across. Joseph McBride has nothing but good things to say about him. Even Wells and Robert Wise had a reconciliation, but it's a really a strange, yeah. tough diplomatic situation where Robert Wise was left back in L.A. Orson Welles had been sent off to South America basically the moment this movie wrapped. And I guess I feel a little bit of sympathy for Robert Wise at the position he was in. He's a studio employee. The film's in trouble. They had this disastrous test screening. Editors did not have limitless power. And I think he did the best he could under the circumstances, but perhaps... He was playing both sides. He's trying to be a studio player and be a friend of Wells, which is a very tough position to be in. So I guess maybe now's as good time as any to talk about, for people who don't know, how come Wells was yanked away from this film before he even got a chance to start really editing or supervising the post-production? Well, uh, during World War II, I guess they convinced him that it was his patriotic patriotic duty to uh, go on a diplomatic journey to South America and make a documentary in Brazil. And um, that would be his wartime contribution because at that time, South America, some of the countries were uh, not fascist, but uh, sort of a little, little too friendly with Nazi Nazi Germany. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Like I I did, I did an article last year about a, um, classic Argentine film, and I learned a little bit about the classic Argentine film industry. And uh, it's, it's sort of weird. You see pictures from film productions in the 1940s where there's uh, Nazis visiting sets and like checking out how, how are things going. And uh, at that time, you know, they put an embargo on uh, raw film stock in Argentina. But that, that was around the same time that 
Orson Welles was poking around and I, I found this great photograph of him hanging around with uh, uh, some of the famous Argentine directors and actresses and parting it up. But uh, most of the time he was in Brazil where he was he was making this film called It's All True, which was also never really completed. Um, and it's uh, it was meant to be this uh, documentary that kind of turned into a more ambitious project. Yeah, it was supposed and, to be a travelogue, and he suddenly yeah, his he's sort of aiming aiming higher. Exactly, and uh, you know he was busy with that, and that's while Ambersons was in post production, so he had very little control. You know, he could send notes to the studio, but they basically just put them in the bin. It's like, yeah. uh, there's no oh, Skype. My, yeah. That is like, yeah. <laughs> your email went to the spam folder. Like it's that kind of a thing where, you know, they could basically just ignore him and do whatever they wanted. And, uh, I mean, Robert Wise, like you said, I, I think from his point of view, he tried to do the best he could. I think he tried to save a film that the studio had wanted nothing to do with at that point. And like you look into the, um, release history of Magnificent Ambersons and they basically dumped it. You yeah. know, people talk about, oh, it flopped when it was released. No, it I was think on the bottom RPO half basically... of a double bill and they just they just completely... We're not spending money on marketing. Mexican Spitfire Sees yeah. a Ghost, which is the sequel to a Mexican Spitfire at Sea and it's just this like ridiculous comedy and they tacked it on. But like the... Uh, I know Joseph McBride said that looking at the opening numbers uh magnificent ambersons did really well in some cities and then just after two weeks archaeo pulled it i think partly because they didn't really want it to make uh, any kind of a profit because they wanted to move on and do you know the showmanship type films not the genius type films and wanted to make a point that we're not doing these kinds of films anymore let's just dump it get rid of it yeah, move it ne on it and never it like, never happened you know and rko of course like they went on to make uh you know excellent uh films later that year like uh cat people's one of my favorite films ever made and that's yeah that was val luton's home in the 40s yeah and the set of magnificent ambersons is reused in a lot of those rko <laughs> yeah, I was horror just films about to say yeah <laughs> you know you see see some of the sets reused oh my god the sets uh one of my favorite anecdotes is hearing about um frank lloyd wright his granddaughter so Frank Lloyd Wright, his his granddaughter's Ann Baxter, who plays Lucy Morgan in the film, who's kind of the she's the, the girl from All that, About Eve. Yeah, yeah, and that's who uh, George is crushing on throughout the film. So Frank Lloyd Wright would go and hang out on set, and he would just complain about <laughs> how, how the set design looked, and like, oh, this, this mansion looks terrible. And Orson Welles had to keep telling him, like, no, no, it's tacky on purpose, and. And uh, it wasn't until Wells showed Frank Lloyd Wright a rough cut that he actually got like, oh, okay, like, you know, these Ambersons aren't actually, like, they're they're not supposed to have taste, <laughs> you know that, and they're basically I hicks. Mean, they're hicks who made good yeah. and they had enough money where they could build the finest house in town, but they're not, they're not sophisticated old world no. aristocracy from like old Europe. There are I mean, rustic that, American sort of pioneers who are now carving out like in a new home in this brand new land. Like the, to me, it always seemed like antithetical to what were American values, but you see this idea of like Americans trying to, you know, okay, we have enough money. We can buy class and trying to rip off this sort of Nouveau European aristocracy. Riche, as they say. Right. Well, I always think like Nouveau Riche, uh, I think of that being more like the, Joseph Cotton character who ends up becoming the self-made man. And like, to me, he's more, that's the American dream. He, he has an invention and he pursues it and he works at it. And then eventually he becomes successful. And, you know, he's sort of, um, 
he, he has his reflective moments on what his invention's going to do for the world. But like, to me, that character, that's, you know, that's the American dream more than the Ambersons, which is like, we're going to live off our money. We're going to have all these servants and we're going to try to, you know, live in this imitation of uh, European nobility. Like to me, it, like it, in a way, it's sort of like a trashy idea of classiness and being and really worried and, about what people say about you. I mean, George yeah. he has zero independence of any kind. All he cares about is what people are gossiping about or, or what people are saying in town. And when he hears that people might be saying things about his mother being in love with Mr. Morgan and he goes on this tear through town. I mean, it's incredible just how preoccupied he is with what people say. Whereas Eugene Morgan, you can tell doesn't care what people say. I mean, he's at the dinner table and the man who is pursuing his daughter is insulting him and saying that the automobile is a useless invention and should have never been invented. And then Joseph Cotton goes into probably the finest piece of acting of his career where he's yeah. just the quintessential old school gentleman saying, oh, well, perhaps they won't bring light to men's souls and so on and so forth. And uh, then I might have to agree with George that perhaps they should have never been invented. And it's just it's an awe inspiring. But it's the future, basically. And like, it's going to happen. Like, you can't stop progress. <laughs> yeah. I miss my best girl. We all do. Lucy's on a visit, Father. She's spending a week with a school friend. She'll be back Monday. George, how does it happen you didn't tell us before? He never said a word to us about Lucy's going away. Probably afraid to. Didn't know what he might break down and cry if he tried to speak of it. Isn't that so, Georgie? <laughs> or didn't Lucy tell you she was going? She told me. At any rate, Georgie didn't approve. I suppose you two aren't speaking again. <laughs> Gene, what's this I hear about someone else opening up a horseless carriage shop somewhere out in the suburbs? Uh, I suppose they'll drive you out of business, or else the two of you will get together and drive all the rest of us off of the street. Well, we'll even things up by making the streets bigger. <laughs> Automobiles will carry our streets clear out to the county line. Well, I hope you're wrong, because if people go to moving that far, real estate values here in the old residence part of town be stretched pretty thin. So your devilish machines are going to ruin all your old friends, eh, Gene? Do you really think they're going to change the face of the land? They're already doing it, Major, and it can't be stopped. Automobiles, Automobiles are... are a useless nuisance. What did you say, George? I said automobiles are a useless nuisance. Never amount to anything but a nuisance. And they had no business to be invented. Of course, you forget Mr. Morgan makes them. Also, did he share in inventing them? If he weren't so thoughtless, he might think you rather offensive. I'm not sure George is wrong about automobiles. With all their speed forward, they may be a step backward in civilization. Maybe that they won't add to the beauty of the world or the life of men's souls. I'm not sure. But automobiles have come. And almost all outward things are going to be different because of what they bring. They're going to alter war and they're going to alter peace. And I think men's minds are going to be changed in subtle ways because of automobiles. And it may be that George is right. Maybe that in 10 or 20 years from now, if we can see the inward change in men by that time, I shouldn't be able to defend the gasoline engine, but would have to agree with George that automobiles had no business to be invented. But like you just see him when he's holding that spoon and you just see him like holding back on this little brat. Like George is such a brat in this story. But 
you know, he ultimately doesn't care what people think of him. And like, I think that's part of the meaning you can get out of this film is just the way that like people try to curate these reputations and care about like, oh, who's dating my mother and this and that. Like ultimately, you know, at the very end when George gets his comeuppance, nobody's there to even laugh at him. Like, yeah, nobody's forgotten. Really, everybody's forgotten he even exists. That's the ultimate comeuppance: is that there's nobody to stick around and point and laugh at his misfortunes because they've long since stopped caring. But man, Joseph Cotton, it's a weird. He had a weird relationship with Wells where they were so close and they were such good friends and they made so many radio shows and plays and movies together and obviously they're brilliant together in The Third Man. But according to Simon Callow, Wells was always a little threatened by Joseph Cotton because Joseph Cotton was you know, the quintessential Virginia gentleman. He's one of my grandmother's favorite actors. And he was good looking in ways that Wells – Wells was like this striking figure, but no one's going to yep. say he's traditionally handsome. And, but Joseph Cotton is. And they ha- but I think their, their rivalry – is what makes their scenes together so good. Like that scene where they had the giant face-off in Citizen Kane where uh, mm-hmm. Jedediah Leland gets a little bit too drunk and tells Charles Foster Kane exactly what he thinks of him. It's one of the great scenes in movie history. Uh, but So I think it was... He's perfectly cast. Walter Houston would have been great, but I think Joseph Cotton is, is yeah. perfectly cast. Joseph Cotton, like, this is probably, like, my favorite performance of Joseph Cotton. But like, imagine how good that scene film. would be, though, if Wells was George at the end of the table being yes, a little brat. Yes, I, I, I completely agree. I, I think, like... Joseph Cotton also in this film too he's he's the closest there is to the film having an antagonist but he's the most reasonable likable character in the entire movie which you know like there's so much irony going on in the film where the Ambersons they're supposed to be magnificent and right away you sort of realize that oh this title's uh, ironic as soon as you know it's going to be the last big ball and it's materialistic I mean materialistic I guess can be magnificent like, well, <laughs> <laughs> well like ultimately when they strip away all the money when they lose everything you realize that they're the pathetic Anderson Ambersons you know they're um they're all pathetic in their own way, and they, they kind of drag each other down, and it, it's like terrible. Or even more than pathetic, I'd argue in many cases pitiful. I mean, for me, yes, yeah. a strong contender for the best acting in movie history is Agnes Moorhead as Fanny. Oh my god! When she's confessing to George that she's got basically like twenty dollars to her name and has been keeping it a secret. And then when she like leans back against the boiler and she's saying, oh, it's not hot, it's cold, but I wouldn't care if it burned me. I mean, it's so, her emotions are such an open wound. And she's got so much brilliant acting throughout. Maybe everybody everybody likes to make fun of her. Everybody's all poor, poor Aunt Fanny, blah, blah, blah. But she has certain scenes where she's almost kind of grunting as she's, like letting her dialogue escape her. I mean, she's a marvelous performer. She was so good in Citizen Kane, but this is the performance of a century. Why did you wait till now to tell me? I couldn't tell till I had to. It wouldn't do any good. My God. Oh, I know what you're gonna do. (laughs) You're... You're gonna leave me in the lurch. I'm only asking you to be reasonable. To try and understand that it's impossible for either of us to go on this way. Will you get up? I can't. (laughs) I'm too weak. Oh, None of this makes any sense. Will you get up? I knew your mother want me to watch over you and try to make something like a home for you. And I tried. I tried to make things as nice for you as I could. I know that. I walked my heels down looking for a place for us to live. I... I 
Sakes, will you get up? Don't sit there with your back against the boiler. Get up, Aunt Fanny. It's not hot. It's cold. The plumber's disconnected. I, I wouldn't mind if they hadn't. I wouldn't mind if it burned. I wouldn't mind if it burned me, George. Oh, Fanny, for gosh sake, get up. Now stop it. Stop it. Listen to me. Do you hear me? afford this place you picked out. I, I'm sure the boarding house is practical, George. I'm sure it's practical. I know it must be practical. And, it is a comfort to be among, among nice people. It's all right. I was thinking of the money, Aunt Fanny. There's, there's, there's one great economy. They, they don't allow tipping. They, they have signs that prohibit it. That's good. <laughs> It, like her character is sort of naturally sort of shrill and like it, it's sort of funny at the beginning when they, they frame her right next to that uh, chicken statue uh, but like you have so much sympathy for her in that scene too where she's just showing her heart and she goes into this like raw dark place that you don't expect for a film from this time period it's just a performance that goes like, you know, they, they say, oh, like, she wasn't a method actor or anything. She was just a good actress. Yeah. But, but it's like Faye Dunaway in the 1970s, like, letting us Yeah, have it. yeah. No, like, it, you know, it could work in a Cassavetes movie. Like, yeah. it, it feels that kind of raw and that unexpected. And, you know, coming from a character that up to that point has basically, to some degree, been kind of a joke. Or, you know, and you're like, oh, my God, there's a real person under there suffering through all of this. And I, I think that dichotomy of both having this ironic distance from these characters, but also being able to care for them and have sympathy for them is what makes the movie work. You know, George, he's he's in some ways a terrible person, and it's not really his fault. He's just been sort of spoiled and raised in this weird environment. But, like... He's precisely the child his mother raised him to be. Oh, my I God. Mean, exactly. You get the sense that he was never spanked. He was never punished. <laughs> yes. What he needed was Major Anderson just to cane him a few times, but all the love <laughs> that might have gone into an entire crop of well, kids. Isabel spoiled him rotten from day one, and well, he's precisely the child that she engineered him to be. One of the best setups and payoffs, there's that guy he's kind of harassing at the beginning, and he hits him, and, you know go to hell and it's cut off <laughs> before he can say it. But when he has to go to him at the end and he's like begging him for a job and he doesn't know how to do anything. And he's like, I'll, I'll handle dangerous chemicals or explosives. Like I just need money. And it's so pitiful. Like you said, you know, yeah, he's reached I think bottom. like, you know, looking at that relationship between George and uh, Lucy Morgan, who's kind of the, I, like Eugene Morgan, What's sort of funny, like, George kind of turns Eugene into his enemy, and I think, like, George doesn't really realize that Eugene actually kind of, I, I won't say like him, but, like, he, he cares for more than uh, George more does than the other he, way around. He certainly cares for more than he deserves. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, you know, Eugene is a gentleman, like, a real honest-to-goodness gentleman. But I think, like, that relationship between Lucy and George, one reason why it's stalling, like, to Lucy... 
you know, she's not impressed by that money or anything like that. And she kind of sees George for what he is, which is a bum. And he happens to be a bum with a lot of money, but, you know, he doesn't have any ambition. He doesn't want to do anything. Like you said, he's like, I think I'm going to be a yachtsman. I don't well, actually want to do anything. She kind of fucks him initially from the moment they meet. <laughs> yes. Like, she's like, oh, thanks for letting my name be Lucy. And she's like, you know, I don't mind that you're such a kind of like a self-important person at all. I think she's charmed by just what a ridiculous person he is on the other hand. Well, he all he does is pester her about getting married. She's like, well, I'm not getting married. Well, they're trying to you're set like, the you're like you're doing setting up a date, and he's like, oh yeah, you'll be ready at this time. And she's like, no, I won't. He's like, yes, you will. And she's like, okay. Yeah, <laughs> like, but it's almost like she's enjoying the it, dance but, and she's enjoying yeah. the flirtation. But I get the sense that from the moment she meets him, she sees right through every single aspect. She yeah. basically she sizes him up very quickly. She's having fun with him. She enjoys his company, and she perhaps hopes that maybe he'll turn a corner, start to grow up a little bit, but. With, a, with her father that she looks up to and admires so tremendously, she's already got a role model that she, basically the kind of man that she wants is going to be the kind of man who reminds her of her father, not yeah. George. And so it's doomed from the start. But they're <laughs> yes. in their early 20s and she, she's having fun with yeah. them. And uh, another reason why George is kind of an unlikable character is he's just a huge cock block. <laughs> like between uh, Eugene and his uh, mother, like you sort of get a sense of the backstory again very quickly like it's done sort of through the gossip and you pick it up in little pieces and then eventually it's explained to George but this idea that uh, Eugene was kind of in love with his mother and but she definitely seems almost kind of to punish Eugene because Eugene got drunk one yeah. night was going to try and serenade her he fell through his bass violin and yeah. you know she got all right. undone and upset and so she marries Mr. Minifer, who is yeah. like they say he's not any Apollo as it were but he's a steady steady young businessman but she basically goes yeah. from a guy who's charming and a gentleman to the most boring quiet man in town and when when George's father finally dies they say, oh, well, the town will hardly know that he was gone. Like, he's such a non-entity <laughs> in the town. Like, I hope when I die, people don't say, yeah, quiet kind of man. People will hardly know that he's gone. <laughs> well, you get that, uh, like, panic shot from uh, Mr. Minifer's coffin, which, like, the, the only character who looks kind of upset by him being dead is uh, Fanny. Like, even, even George doesn't seem that phased that his own father died, but... Um, you know, again, he becomes very protective of his mother, who's uh, an Amberson Minifer, I guess, hyphenated. Yeah. So uh, to what degree would you say the Oedipal read is accurate? Because for me, I'm a natural pervert and I'm going to think, oh, well, he's he's way too attached to his mother. And you could easily say yeah. it's because he's so old world that all he cares about is appearances. All he cares about is what the town's saying and the idea of her possibly lowering her standards to be with an inventor when she's in Amberson, like it's just, you know, it's, you know, Oh, mother mustn't, mother mustn't do that. And Fanny kind of makes fun of him. Oh, mother mustn't do that. <laughs> I think enough of it still shown shines through in their, the subtext and the performances that you can still kind of pick up on that. If you're looking for it, I, I think you can definitely tell they try to cut that down as much as you can, but it explains what these motivations are and why, why this sort of love triangle forms. I mean, they go on this weird world tour to keep her away from Mr. Morgan. And I remember when it, it, there's this great scene where he's explaining to Lucy that he's about to go on this large trip. She's like, oh, well, I hope you have a wonderful time. He's like, well, I'm not expecting to. She's like, oh, well, I wouldn't take the trip then. It's like he, he knows he's doing something that's going to make him absolutely yeah. miserable, just traveling around with his sick and dying mother just to keep her away from the man that she loves. He knows it's a bad idea. The mother knows it's a bad idea, but she's being pressured into it. She can't come home. And you know this trip, whatever trip they're taking, it's going to cost a fortune because they're probably staying in nice hotels. And it's like they 
are the architects of their own misery and unhappiness, but they yes. are so locked into that behavior, they almost have no choice other than to do precisely what they do. And to the point where, like, he won't even let Eugene Morgan see her when she's on her deathbed. Like, and it, that's really kind of heartbreaking when she's asking and she's like, oh, I, I really wish I could have seen him one last time. And you realize that you he know, was the George love of her life. Held so yeah. much happiness from his mother. Like, you know, it's really heartbreaking, actually. Dolores Costello, she's really fantastic in that part. Like she's, but uh, Dolores Costello, like she was a silent film actress. Yep. She was in the uh, the Curtis <laughs> Noah's Ark movie that killed a bunch of people. Oh wow! And uh, and uh, she's, uh, and she she was kind of retired at that time, and Wells got her back. And I don't, I, I think she's really great in this film. I mean, the the cast is fantastic. Like. She's too old to for the flashback the, scenes, but she's perfect for the later scenes. But she's scenes. perfect for the later scenes. Yeah, yeah. I, I completely agree. Like, uh, you know, so the, there's some of the regulars and carryovers from Citizen Kane, plus, uh, I guess, Dolores Costello and uh, Tim Holt are, are kind of the the additions that, you know, if you go from Citizen Kane to this, that's kind of who was brought well, also, in. Also, Citizen uh, Kane, while prepping for it, Orson saw Stagecoach, you know, he says 40 yeah. times. Tim Holt has a small role in Stagecoach. So yeah, he's wonder, not in a lot of Stagecoach. Yeah, it's like it's like did he cast them just because he watched Stagecoach so many times? Like, oh, well, I, I remember that guy. I, I presume so. Like, the, <laughs> like the, you know, it's it's one of his favorite films, and he watched it so many times. Like, I guess I don't know. He must have noticed something, and like he sort of talked about how um, Tim Holt maybe deliberately kind of stayed away from being the leading man in a pictures. Like, he almost found it less pressure just to be in these B westerns and. Uh, Oh, he's in that uh, science fiction movie about the caterpillar monster, the uh, monster who challenged the earth or something like that, or just challenged the world. <laughs> but he, he's in like a lot of these picture, B pictures, probably of his own volition. And I think maybe like in that way, there's something that works in in his favor in the performance of the character as being somebody who's sort of unambitious. And um, I don't know, like George Amberson Minifer is a really, really great character. And, it's interesting to see what Tim Holt does with it. I would have loved to see what Orson Welles could have done in that role. You get a sense of it from the radio play, of course, but it, you know, being on screen, it would have been something else. Like to me, the character, he almost reminds me of uh, Lord Bullingdon in Barry Lyndon. Gotcha. When yeah. they say like, oh, he grew into a fine man and you just see this like man child being like coddled by his mother still. Like, you know, a little bit like that, you know. I, Absolutely. I sort no, of he think comes of the from character that, that same in that tradition. Way. Yeah, I can't remember which interview it was, but on the Blu-ray for the Criterion of uh, the flick, Wells at one point mentions that at this point in his career, in his late 20s, <clears throat> he was kind of cocky in a way that he didn't want to be a movie star. He wanted to almost kind of by accident or through like incidentally do great roles, which is why he avoided <laughs> yes. playing. With, and only someone in their late 20s is that like thinks of yeah. their career in, in that sense the, the later interview he sort of realized that maybe that was a mistake yeah, yeah absolutely because later on in his life it was his star power which allowed him to stay yeah. in business he'd go off and do something cool like compulsion or he'd do moby dick or whatever the case might be and then he would have a little money to do one of his passion projects on the side and invested in something like chimes at midnight and so he increasingly relied upon his star power in, in his later years but i guess mm -hmm. after at this point and this was his peak 
in terms of commercial viability as a filmmaker. And I, I think the the greatest shame of Wells's career is that he and John Houseman had a parting of the ways. And there are a lot of different reasons as to why they might have had a parting of the ways. But Wells's career in theater and in radio and up through Citizen Kane, he had this incredible producing partner who I think he had all the discipline and all the like financial know-how that to Wells channel Wells. Yeah. And they made a perfect team. And mm-hmm. the moment they took had a parting of the ways, Wells never really was on firm footing ever again <laughs> until the day he died. <laughs> and he did he had so many wonderful movies and so many amazing performances and so many incredible just life experiences and great stories and appearing yeah. on talk shows and doing magic tricks. Like I said, he's my favorite persona in the history of movies. But if you were... It's a shame he didn't at least get to do two or three more big studio movies with a strong, disciplined producer <laughs> at, at his side. Because him working inside that studio system, like as much as people talk about Wells being an outsider, never really right for the studio system, something about seeing him with the full weight of, you know, even not necessarily a huge studio, but just like he's got RKO money, he's got sets, he's got he's got it going on in this film, you the know, train set. I, I think... Yeah. He's got the full train set. Well, just like he called, he got a movie set, the greatest train set a boy could ever have. And it's true. When you've got the full resources of a studio at your fingertips, when it comes to production value, you know, some of his later movies, the sound is off or he's cheating shots or he's dubbing his actors. But if you watch, you know, he's cobbling his film together over extended periods of time and stuff might not match and he has to try to figure out how to get everything to work. I was thinking when you said that the train set of the scene at the train station. Where oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. I, gotcha, I didn't even realize at first, like, it's not a real train station. It's it's a, you know, when you look more closely, it's obviously a backdrop and they put uh, fog or smoke in between. And apparently they used actors of uh, varying heights to force the perspective a little bit when the Oh, they did like Collins in Casablanca. Is, is that was leaving. a common trick back then. Yeah. In Casablanca, the famous scene at the end. Oh, it's but I, I love stuff like that. filling up the plane. <laughs> you know, and it's uh, it's part of that like Hollywood magic and that like slight unrealness that I, I really kind of love about this film too. And it all feels really right for it. I know in the 60s, he thought about maybe filming a new ending for Magnificent Ambersons. With the character, with the actors coming back as still, still older living selves. actors. Yeah. Which, like, I almost wish, I mean, you know, there's so many things with Orson Welles you sort of wish had happened and he had done, but like, oh man, you know, ending that was set 20 years after the original ending of uh, Magnificent Ambersons and what could that be and what would these characters say or to each other like 20 film. years past that? Just a that. short film about with Agnes or, Moorhead and Joseph Cotton would have been such an incredible yeah. reunion because Joseph Cotton and Wells, while they did have a reconciliation and obviously they worked together, they, Wells felt very incredibly betrayed that Joseph Cotton would cooperate with the reshoots because without yeah. his cooperation, the reshoots would have been much more difficult and much more challenging. But clearly they got got over it because they did work on The Third Man. And Joseph Cotton's there as the coroner in Touch of Evil, and he pops up for an interview in F for Fake. But man, when they stopped working together so closely, it is... Because Joseph Cotton's career was never quite the same either. I mean, obviously you have things no, like no. Shadow of a Doubt with Alfred Hitchcock, but Cotton was always at his best when but working I with know, his buddy. It feels like... To, to me, when I was thinking of Joseph Cotton, I think of him as a Wells actor. Like, yeah. you know, the, the two should go together. He's a Mercury that, actor, yeah. Uh, man, yeah, like, the ending is the thing that bothers me most about Magnificent Everson. It's so tacked on. It's like, uh, you know, if you ever see the happy ending version of Brazil, you know, where you, they, they uh, completely changed the ending of Terry Gilliam's Brazil, where um, at the end, it, it's uh, it's not just all a hallucination or dream it's oh no it's just a happy ending yeah but uh the ending for magnificent Ambersons, like <laughs> fred fleck yeah. shot that tacked on scene i think there's a strong case to be made for it the as the worst scene yeah. 
of the 1940s. It's, it looks like they dug two corpses up and said, walk toward the camera. But what's weird is that it is the dialogue from the bleak ending of the screenplay. If you read the script, and the yeah. script, what's amazing about the screenplay is that it's incredibly specific from a technical standpoint in terms of every time the camera moves, every time it pushes. I mean, it's got all the long takes. They're there in the script. And yet, as you're reading it, it still has all this incredible poetry. I think a lot of people love to shit, like, including Paul and Kale, love to shit on Orson Welles and say that he wasn't much of a writer because that actually it was Joseph L. Mankiewicz who deserves more of the credit for the script of Citizen Kane. But if you read the screenplay know. adaptation well, of Ambersons, it's awe-inspiring what Wells did and he's yeah. the only screenwriter on it but yeah. that dialogue that's an attacked on happy ending it does come from Wells' script but it's completely out of context and in a completely different setting and it's like no it doesn't work unless you're using it as intended in the original script i mean it's all in the subtext and a screenplay can only tell you so much like uh, you know a character saying I hate you could also mean I love you depending how the actors play it like it's all how it's realized and brought to the screen and how uh, you know subtext is played and all all of that stuff it makes a huge difference and you know a screenplay can only tell you so much about what a movie is you know and, and it's it a screenplay can be kind of a work of art on its own obviously but rarely but at the end of the day it's happen. it's uh you know basically it's it's meant to be a blueprint for a film and how closely that blueprint is followed you know it's it's up to artists to decide and to interpret and put their own spin on it so I, I think that's definitely part of it i know some people say the um the booth tarkington novel has a little bit more of a positive ending too i think it was wells idea to go like really dark which uh, you know there's still enough of it shining through like i i really do like even though it's it's terribly butchered just that quick hard descent that the whole family goes through and kind of the perfect culmination to all of the george George Amberson Minifer's uh, reservations about the automobile is is him getting run over by a car. Well, also, it's the automobile that brings the exodus to the outskirts of town. Basically, like the, yeah. the beginning is something resembling suburbs, which means that real estate values in town start to drop. And Major Amberson's money is all wrapped up in local real estate. Yes. And they slowly start having to sell off little pieces of the land. And some of the stuff that's missing from the sleigh ride sequence is them commenting on some of these gross houses that have been popping up on the land that used to belong to them. Like you get the, the signs of how piece by piece their their fortunes are being chipped away at o over time. But it's the automobile which leads people out of the city into the suburbs, which means that all of uh, Major Amberson's money is going to shrivel up and die, un unfortunately. But man, it's uh, it's funny. Before we started recording, I, I kept trying to think that we we're going to have some sort of like official plan for going through this. And I feel like we've done the exact opposite. We're already just like zigzagging. <laughs> just but that's jumped, what's so cool about it, yeah. talking about Wells. From a film history standpoint, I can't think of a filmmaker who's got more to talk about in terms of the behind the scenes of the films, what might have been, and just what we've got. If somebody wanted to completely, totally ignore film history, all the behind the scenes, all the extras, and just watch the movies, they would still be riveted. Yes. But it's, it's what's incredible is that all these remarkable movies are just the tip of the iceberg. 
for this extraordinary behind-the-scenes uh, narrative. I think the best essay on the Blu-ray is the one by Simon Callow. And we talked about him before mm-hmm. when, we did, when we did our episode on Amadeus. He's an incredible yeah. actor. I mean, Simon Callow's he's got an incredible way of speaking, but I love the phrase he uses about Orson Welles. He says, his voice has a wonderful way of curling around your brain. I was like, yes. Yes. That's exactly <laughs> what his voice does. It curls face. around yeah. your brain, and it's yeah. you, know, you just can't resist it. I mean... I think for me, all the most memorable lines in the film come from the narration and just Will's voice and that radio voice, how it makes this feel uh, not like a fairy tale, but it, I'm watching a story. Wow, I'm watching a story unfold. It, the narration definitely plays a role in that. Uh, and it, it's such a remarkable film. I think you're right that like when you talk about, oh, I love Magnificent Ambersons, it kind of means two things. It means I love the movie sitting in front of me and it also means... I love the magnificent Ambersons that could have been. I love the story behind it and trying to deal with the frustrations of how this film was uh, chopped into what it is. So, you know, I, I think that's part of the attraction to it is, is this backstory. And I really, really wish the other version at least existed. You know, and I, I mean, I always joke with people. I don't seriously think this, but I, I like to joke that, oh, like, what if they find the footage for Magnificent Ambersons and, oh, wait, it sucks. I like the, the original version better than the studio risk. version. We talked about this with Jodorowsky's Dune. Yeah. The fact that it was never made in our minds, well, of course, it's the best science fiction ever, film ever made. <laughs> exactly. But who knows? Maybe it might have sucked. Like, it might, maybe, maybe it wouldn't have come together. And for Wells fans, people who are very romantic about what yeah. might have been for Wells, I try, when possible, not to be swept away by the romance of Wells's narrative because it is so compelling and try to be more, a little bit more practical about some of the problems that he brought on through through his own doing. Yeah. But if you love Wells, Wells as a person or as a filmmaker, whatever the case might be, the fact that we'll never see Magnificent Ambersons, it makes his career bigger in a way yes. that it might not have been. If you also it know been just enough to know it would have been brilliant. You know what the scene would have been. It's just like, ah, I wish I could see it, you know? And it, I, I think it's not like some of his projects that were unfinished where it's like, oh, that sounds like it could have been great. You know, like it's not the deep, the deep he shot a couple of days and like, you yeah, know, he yeah. kind of scrapped it, but like, you know, there's a couple of remarkable shots online of him shooting Oya Kodar like, buck ass nude on a sailboat, which, which I enjoyed <laughs> this behind the scenes fix. Those are great. But yeah, this is a, a different situation entirely, but I do wish that we had the full Bernard Herman score. Like Bernard Herman yeah. took his name off of this. Yeah. He yeah, is one he, of the great, took his name off. he may, maybe apart from Ennio Marcone, I mean, you can make a case for either and being the greatest film composer of all time, but starting with Citizen Kane up through Taxi Driver, Taxi and Driver, all those yeah. like great Alfred Hitchcock movies. Bernard Herrmann's one of the greats, but no he refused to have anything to do with this film once they started chopping his score into little pieces. Yeah, like I, I sort of noticed at the very end of the film when they have the um, the, the narrated credits by Orson Welles, so you really cool. feel like. Bernard Herrmann should have gotten one and it's yeah. like oh wait he's not there you know and he's such a big part of the film that's so fucking classy that had the director yeah. and everybody knows his voice on radio to have him just walk us through everybody that was involved as John Noir once said Orson Welles is an aristocrat working in a popular medium and that's destined to like something along to the fact of like that's destined to be like doomed to failure if you've yes. got those two warring impulses <laughs> but there's an, an aristocratic air of how sophisticated it is to have the director once again with his voice curling around your brain describing what you just saw and who who who's involved ladies and gentlemen the magnificent ambersons was based on booth tarkington's novel stanley cortez was the photographer barclay kirk designed the sets 
Al Fields dressed them. Robert Wise was the film editor. Freddie Fleck was the assistant director. Edward Stevenson designed the ladies' wardrobe. The special effects were by Vernon L. Walker. The sound recording was by Bailey Fessler and James G. Stewart. Here's the cast. Eugene, Joseph Cotton. Isabel, Dolores Costello. Lucy, Ann Baxter. George, Tim Holt. Fanny, Agnes Moorhead. Jack, Ray Collins. Roger Bronson, Erskine Sanford. Major Amberson, Richard Bennett. I wrote the script and directed it. My name is Orson Welles. This is a Mercury production. And he did the same thing for the trailer for Citizen Kane. Long before it came out, he's introducing the audience to all the principal players. Like, oh, this is Joseph Cotton. You're going to be seeing a lot of him in the years to come, blah, blah, blah. He just had a natural way of speaking to his audience. And as you and I, we're both podcasters. We've been podcasting mm -hmm. for over half a decade now. It's incredible just how much better he is at the voice, <laughs> at the art of the voice than any of us will ever hope to be. But can you imagine having that voice like in your 20s? Like, oh, that's uh, can only dream. Yeah. <laughs> if he was around today, he would have been just dominating the podcast scene, I'm sure all these great stories and I mean one of the things that's like there's a Laserdisc audio commentary on the Blu-ray and it's from I think uh, 1986 like Robert Carringer just after, or something like that I, I think so but like that's that's not that long after Wells died like he almost lived long enough like damn we could have had Orson Welles audio commentary for Citizen Kane we could have had him talking about Magnificent Ambersons like he just ah I, he doesn't like know, to watch his movies, though. I doubt he would have sat still I, I know. for it. Because he... You know, they talk about him watching Magnificent Ambersons and just crying. Like, you know, it must have brought up so many bad memories yeah. and, you know, so much frustration that, like... I mean, I, I know a lot of people... Like, I, I don't like watching my own stuff. Like, I, I feel sick when... I, I mean, well, a filmmaker watching their own stuff is going to want to tinker with it. They're going to want to mess yeah. with it. And I, 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 All I'm, you see is the, the faults when you when you watch your own stuff. So, it, it, it's, yeah. it's hard. But, yeah. um, and, and obviously, Bogdanovich has hours upon hours of interviews with him that they were that they prepared yeah. and pre prior to the publication of the book this is orson wells which i was like my bible in college i read it over and over mm. and over again those are great yeah yeah and there are excerpts from those that interview on the uh, on the blu-ray where he's talking about ambersons but i don't know if wells would be a good he wouldn't do a great commentary track like john milius and arnold schwarzenegger for conan because he <laughs> hated watching his old movies although yeah. in that same book peter bogdanovich talks about how he keeps mentioning how he doesn't like the trial and wells finally says i wish you'd stop saying that because it's one of the few films that's actually intact that was released the way i wanted to yeah. and the fact that you don't like it like really hurt trial, my feelings like people talk about citizen kane like uh trial's probably his best film actually <laughs> like well, once you get into this stuff like I, I i think like oh wow like i will i will gladly you know, do another episode on the trial and he's ever seen because I love the trial but, sure. but, 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 yeah. but, but I can't even speak Bogdanovich says that he and Wells go to see the trial together and that Wells laughed and laughed and laughed and had a blast watching the trial so 
it's a bit of a stance or he's doing a bit of posturing saying he never watches his movies because he did go yeah. see the trial and he did watch Magnificent Ambersons with Jagalum. And so it would happen here and there. But I think he's one of those people like Joaquin Phoenix where it's like you, you were there, you made it, you put everything you had into it. And then yeah. it's like onwards and upwards, you're moving on to the next project. Right, right. Uh, though it's interesting too, like Magnificent Ambersons, I think it's more influential than some people might assume like I, I do see a lot of it in other films and other filmmakers clearly took away something from it so i think like as much as people kind of talk about it as being this flawed uh, almost aborted sort of movie like i i think it still had an impact it was still influential you know i mean bogdanovich is a perfect example i think like when you watch last picture show and you feel oh, like nostalgia yeah. and you like you know the the so many people say it feels like a john ford movie like no it's not a john ford movie it's an orson welles homage it, it completely, and it's a town yes. that is dying and it's decaying and people are moving on yeah. the picture show is shutting down this town is on its on its on its last legs it just doesn't have a nice like house in the middle of town it's just a small little rustic like village essentially in texas but man yeah as a, as a double feature magnificent amberson's the last picture show go perfectly hand in that, hand that would be a perfect double feature i i think that would be great and you know there's some films like i don't know if they're necessarily influenced but like i definitely think of certain films when i watch magnificent amberson's like visconti's the leopard oh yeah for the most part that's kind of a film I could, tons of common ground like uh especially like i i the Leopard, a lot of that film, I'm like, uh, like it's very handsomely shot. I could kind of like take or leave it. And then it gets to that big dance scene at the end where it's like Burt Lancaster just kind of hunched over walking through and you just see like this era ending right before your eyes. And like to me, that feels so magnificent, Ambersons. And that's my favorite, favorite part of the movie. Like I can watch that ending of The Leopard as like a, a little film in its own and I'm completely satisfied. I, I love that so much. I kind of wish that was Well, it has all the those great lines in The Leopard but... where his son's explaining how if we want things to stay the same, then yeah. a lot of things are going to have to change. And that's always the inevitable reality of being wealthy or empowered. Any point in human history is that the world's always changing and yes. those who are able to adapt if they're already wealthy, are able to stay in power, and those people who fight it and resist, <laughs> they get eaten eaten up by like by the I sands mean, the of time. The mistake is to fight progress. I mean, I I don't think you can change progress. I think maybe you can weather it. Maybe you can, you know, travel the wave and. Uh, yeah, it's and like trying to fight social it. media. Social media has yeah. come and it sucks and it makes us dumb and it makes us angry <laughs> and it makes us tribal and it makes us have like these little echo chambers. But you can't ignore it because social media has come and it has changed the world as we know it. You know, I mean, like part of the thing with the progress is like it's easy to be nostalgic about this other time period that may or may not have existed, but it's like. Oh yeah, really, really. Right now is better. Like I, I'm glad I have. Uh, I'm living in the age of automobiles, and I'm glad I have internet. And as much as we sort of think like ah, times were simpler, times were better, it's sort of, you know, more about the nostalgia than the reality of like oh wait, yeah, no, the, the things are much better well, now. Also, actually, I mean, I'm old enough to have plenty of nostalgia for different points in my life. But I think what what people always tend to overlook is that the era, era that you're nostalgic about. You just happen to be younger then. And people are always going to be I think if you ever mean people sure. 30 years from now who are nostalgic about 2020, like, oh my God, it was such a crazy time. It was such a great time to so be alive. Exciting. So much going well, on. Well, <laughs> and I'm like, no, there was like a like racial strife and a pa yep. global pandemic and all this crazy shit going on. But people who are 18 right now, like a little brother and sister, they just graduated from high school. They're going to Beach Week. They've been exposed to COVID 100 times over. When they're old men or old women, they're going to look back on 2020 like, ah, what a great time to be, to be the, young. The good old days, yeah. <laughs> but, but I guess but with Booth Tarkington and with Wells, 
Yeah. Wells is nostalgic about a time that he never experienced in particular, which is a different kind. And the same thing with like Peckinpah and movies like The Wild Bunch or Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. He has this incredible nostalgia for the dying of the West. But it's like, well, are you ever going to make a movie just about like the heyday of the West? Because it seems like no matter what period you make a Western in, the West it's is always, always dying. The West. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like a lot of my favorite filmmakers kind of deal with history and nostalgia and sort of interrogate that. Like Alexei Garman, who like a lot of people call the Russian Orson Welles, partly because it took so long for him to make his movies. Like, um, you know, his his Citizen Kane is a movie called My Friend Ivan Lapshin, which is about the 1930s in Russia, which like a lot of people kind of considered like, ah, like the last great time, the golden days before everything went bad under Stalin. And like part of what he shows in that film is like, oh no, things always kind of sucked, (laughs) you know? So I I kind of appreciate that approach, but like there is such a a romance to the Magnificent Ambersons that I I always kind of get something out of it, even though like, obviously there's elements Uh, that are ironic. The dancing and silhouettes. You want, if people want to talk about study, just lighting and cinema and shot composition, there's some shots in this movie that are so richly textured that they give you your eyeballs, little miniature orgasms where you'll have silhouettes (laughs) in the foreground playing music and then you'll have people dancing in the background, and then you'll have people on the stairs behind them looking down, and there's so much depth of field and so much detail, and everything seems right in the One shot place. of Tim Holt on the staircase where he's, you know, partly in shadow, and he's just backlit by the window, and it's so gorgeous. Like, visually, this is one of the best-looking films of the era, and, you know, even with a couple of the sort of ugly reshot inserts in, in the film, it's still, like, you know, you think of the... Um, the scenes in the snow with the carriage and the car and like with the weird little... crazy close-ups. oh my god when they're in the car and they're singing yes. and you get these almost garish well, nightmarish close-ups after these pastoral elegant beautiful shots beforehand it's such a strange scene but for me that's kind of the that's the big money the, the... shot of the movie that whole sequence <laughs> And then the, the the perfect visual touch to cap off that scene is the iris out oh yeah which old is like school. an old fashioned technique and you know there's a couple of techniques like you know the Citizen Kane used certain techniques to make stuff look like old beat up news footage and you know this it takes a different approach where it's you know the vignetted en- edges of the frame and the certain qualities like the iris out you sort of associate more with silent films just to make you feel that other time period and you just feel like oh you know this is a film from you know not the 1940s but from the turn of the century when it's set you know it, it kind of gives you that although like you know talking a little bit about the the some of the tackiness of the, the Ambersons. Like, I was thinking, uh, have you seen that documentary, The Queen of Versailles? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the earliest episodes of uh, of a Wrong Reel was about that. It was a McHale recommendation. Oh, what, what did we pair it with? But it was like Wrong Reel, like 13, <laughs> or Wrong Reel 12. That, that must have been an early but one. But it, bo- it was the bottom half of a double bill of topics. But I can't remember what the main one was. Might have been Foxcatcher. I think it was. I think it was, we were talking about Foxcatcher. <laughs> and we are talking about his the family, that main character played by Steve Carell. And then McHale had right. the idea for pairing it with Queen of Versailles. But that was a long time ago. And I can't remember because I... Uh, smoke too much pot (laughs) (laughs) like queen of versailles might also make a good kind of double feature with magnificent ambersons in a weird way like that's also sort of a a riches to rags kind of story absolutely like something about like to me this idea of oh the american aristocracy like it's such a weird concept and you know to have these uh, rich timeshare people trying to make a knockoff of versailles palace like how 
tasteless could you be? Like, we, we can't come up with anything for ourselves. We're just going to copy, like, oh, yeah, Louis Fourteenth had taste. Let's just copy that. It's like, about as tasteful as living in a casino. Like, for me, <laughs> it's just, like, there is an ele- I feel like, I'm not, like, aristocracy is almost like something that's like ephemeral you can't even really put your finger on but for me there should yeah. be an elegance to it there should be a simplicity to it there should be an effortlessness it's a there should be like there's almost an art to it and i think it'll but it boils down to more than anything is manners and taste because you can be an aristocrat yeah. and flat broke and you can be the richest person on the planet and still be total white trash it has nothing to do <laughs> with your wealth it's a it's a bearing it's a manner and that's yeah. what a lot of people overlook exactly and uh, I guess while we're on the topic of uh, France from that period, <laughs> I was thinking like uh, there's a quote in the Magnificent Ambersons: "When times are gone, they aren't old; they're dead. There, there aren't any times with new times." And like there's that famous Marie Antoinette quote about like there's nothing new except what has been forgotten. And to me, that almost felt like you know you could have put that right at the beginning of the film and opened it with something like that. And uh, you know, in a way, this is sort of the the last days of the american aristocracy and it like to me the the eugene morgan is is the sort of nouveau riche upstart who kind of does away with all this stuff but you know that idea of uh, americans with the servants and these you know big grand mansions it seems so kind of outdated and again like the the midwest setting is so interesting to me because usually these stories would be in Philadelphia kind of or Boston. Well, it's or either New York. East Coast or West Coast or maybe the South if you're talking like Gone with the Wind or something like that, which is also sort of. But it's like an age of but, innocence. They're, what they're aspiring yeah. for is that age of innocence, kind of old world aristocracy. And- exactly. Sure. And I mean, a lot of the, those films are really great. Like um, Age of Innocence is one of my favorite movies, actually. But like something about that Midwest setting and that kind of clash between like these characters who maybe think that they're. I don't know, more aristocratic than they really are. Well, the townspeople sum it up perfectly. When the town's talking about the house, like, there it is. Well, well, like running water upstairs and down. and It's just just conveniences and that sort of thing. But it's not like, (laughs) oh, my God, like they brought in an architect from, you know, Romania to design the house or anything like that. No, no. It's just a a nice house. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many ways you can dissect and break down this story. And I think, but you hit the nail on the head when it comes to just, these little moments with the dialogue and whether they come from Wells or whether they come from uh, come from the novel there's so many lines throughout that just like stir your soul whether it's, it's such a rapid fire experience where like you go through such a range of emotions in such a short amount of time like I, I think to me that's one of the most remarkable things about it I mean like the quote about Wells saying oh it looks like somebody edited edited it with, with a, a lawnmower, lawnmower. <laughs> yeah you know like I, I kind of get that but like because there are some glaring things, but at the same time, like I, I think Robert Wise did a beautiful job of like, oh, how do I turn this into a sub ninety minute movie? I think like in that way, it turned out really, really well in the way it moves and the way you just get these little wisps of emotion that are like uh, you know sand falling in between your fingers. It just sort of disappears before you get a chance to really get a hold onto it. And you know, for eighty eight minutes to go from like the you know supposed good old days to sadness and tragedy in the modern times you know it feels like every time they go outside like you know there's more houses and there's telephone wires going up and there's all this stuff kind of 
rising into the yeah, city. Yeah, and you get more. Get that, uh, if you look hard, sequence, yeah. you can always pick up those little details. When a lot of those were removed to make the film feel less bleak because everybody wanted yep. positivity and optimism. But if you look hard, like when Eugene and Lucy are, when George and Lucy are riding through the town, you can see little telephone poles and things like that. Oh, those used to not be there. And you're getting little bits of evidence. But, but I guess for me, the, the big shame is that if it's all true and the trip to Brazil and the, the patriotic duty yeah. that was in, like forced upon him by, I think it was Nelson Rockefeller said, you've got to go down and do this, blah, blah, blah. If that had not happened, Wells was a natural showman. He was an artist, but he's also a showman. Yeah. And I, I get the feeling that if he had been in the editing room with Robert Wise, they would have found a compromise with a, a, a tempo and a speed that would have given RKO what they wanted. But because when you listen to the radio show, even the narration is it's up tempo and it's upbeat yes. and it's positive, whereas the narration and the version we have is a little more melancholy. It's a little more sad and it's a little more mournful. And who knows? Perhaps Wells might have even redone the narration to just to give it a little bit more of a sense of like get up and go. That's we, the thing. the you reality never is, we'll never know. The movie's finished. Yeah, you know. So like, assuming that they find that missing footage, you can make a cut out of the movie. It won't necessarily tell you what Orson Welles would have done with it had the he fine been tuning. around. Because Orson you know. was one of the greatest editors well, who ever lived, and it's all about the milliseconds. Sometimes like the, the, that's the, where the, the magic details, happens. the fine tuning, exactly. That's that's where the magic is. So, you know, I think as is, it's a it's a beautiful, beautiful scarred film. You know, and I, I think if you can accept that, it, it's clearly one of Orson Welles's best films, actually. And you know, if you can sort of look into the backstory and kind of accept certain things. I mean, obviously the when most When you mentioned before the trials, your favorite Wells yeah. film, how, how yes. do you rank your top five Wells? Oh, I, I don't even know if I could. I, I think that's a thing that changes depending which ones I'd watched most recently. That, that happens for me <laughs> but, as well. Uh, but for me, I guess F for fake is always going to be in there. Chimes at midnight is always going to be in there. Yeah. Kane will always be in there. Touch of evil will always be in there. The question is like what what's going to be that number five? And it's sometimes it'll be Lady from Shanghai. Some sometimes it'll be yep. Ambersons. Sometimes it'll be Otello. But um, <laughs> it's, it's but I would love to do the trial with you at some point because I'm fascinated by the trial. I've seen it in the theater actually well, a couple of times. Trial and I, and I used to uh, own the Laserdisc, but it seems like you yep. like it more than I do. So I would love to get your take because I love enthusiasm for Wells, and it sounds like on that front. Yours exceeds my own. I think that'll be uh, sure. that would be a, that would be a fun one because it's a, a, once again the story behind it remarkable and the movie is <laughs> one of a kind. It's also like if you read the Kafka novel, it's a it's not a good adaptation of Kafka or representation of Kafka, but it's a great film. So yeah, I'd be happy to somewhere down the line talk about that. It almost feels like a, like the kind of rip like yeah. just randomly looked at a shelf and said let's adapt that one and like went off and did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like. Um, there's also a, a version of the trial from the 90s with Colin McLaughlin and uh, Anthony Hopkins, which might be good to pair that with if you want to do multiple Kafka stories. Well, I don't know if I, I don't know if I can pair Wells with with something else. I might feel like I'm like <laughs> I, I, I don't know, like having sex with a condom. I like I like the full unprotected sex experience. But we, we can we can uh, talk, we can talk about it after we finish we, recording. We can figure but, something out. Yeah. Yeah. But as we start winding down, because well, we've already gone like uh, like 90 minutes, which is incredible. Sure. It's yeah. flown by. But it would gone on longer than the film. <laughs> a yeah, it wouldn't be a podcast. That's oh, true. We've gone longer than the movie. It wouldn't be a podcast with Martin Kessler though without me picking his brain about the the work of From Software, the people behind the Soulsborne franchise, including Demon Souls, Blood Soul, Blood Blood Bloodborne, and the three Dark Souls um, games. We have 
Elden Ring on the way, and we've got this remastered, re- like revamped version of Demon yeah. Souls coming on the PS5. What are your thoughts on the upcoming crop of projects from From Software? What's got you most excited? Elden Ring, I'm not sure what it's going to be, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be great. And thinking of uh, Miyazaki coming off of Sekiro and what he's been doing with that, like I, I'm just excited for anything, especially like him team, teaming up with George R. R. Martin. Like I'm, I'm sure it's going to be some amazing fantasy follow-up that who knows might even like overshadow dark souls like it, it, it can, i can only imagine what that's going to be like the demon souls remake i have a better idea of what that's going to be like because i played demon souls and i'm glad it's a remake and not just like a re-texturing or you know updating the textures to hd and all that stuff because like demon souls it's it's a wonderful kind of like early lead into dark souls but it's still kind of clunky in some aspects and yeah they got to clean up um, they got to add in yeah. the conveniences that people expect now and like the some of the the designs i know it's like in demon souls they're very cartoony compared to dark souls and it looks like they're sort of taking a different approach to some of the designs for creatures and bosses and stuff like that so i'm really curious how that's going to turn out but um I was actually, like, just before they announced that, I was kind of thinking, like, oh, maybe I'll replay Demon's Souls again, because, uh, you know, like, Demon's Soul, it's uh, it's got a different feel to it, and it's it's it's, it's pretty fun in its own right. Like, I, I wouldn't just write it off, even though it's an older game, it's still a lot of fun, but uh, somehow I ended up playing the, uh, the original Dark Souls over again, and uh, then they just announced that uh, the Demon's Soul is, Souls is going to get its... Uh, it's remake, so that's exciting. And the first Dark Souls, again, like I, I love playing that and I could probably play it forever. I'm getting close to the point where I can kind of go from beginning to end in about two days. I can't quite speedrun it yet, but I, I've gotten a lot better at, at getting all the way through the game. Well, I love it. I saw of, a tweet of yours a couple, yeah. the other day that you were talking about how you're still discovering certain secrets in certain zones. And that there's, there's always little nuggets like, NPCs you've never met or zones you've never fully explored or items you've never found. And it was incredible to me now it's five years in. I've been playing Dark Souls 1, 2, and 3 basically on a loop, almost at the expense of all of the games. Every once in a while I'll take a break yeah. and play something else, like I played Divinity 2, uh, Original Sin on my Mac and things like that. But what I'm hoping for with Elden Ring is essentially the Dark Souls experience, like in Dark Souls 3, but in a more open-world environment. Because while it is an open-world yeah. environment, Dark Souls 3, you can kind of go one way or another, but eventually you run out of things to do, and then you have to just start over and play it on New Game Plus, which is fine, and you can, it adds additional challenge. <laughs> I, I want a world where I can get lost and explore endlessly, like something like yeah. Skyrim or something like Grand Theft Auto Five, where there's always more to learn, always more to explore, but... With the functionality and the action and the and the customization of a Dark Souls experience, because exactly. I think that would be quite different. Because most open world well, RPGs, and, uh, they don't have the sophistication of the combat interface of the Dark Souls franchise, which is second to none in my opinion. They just have really yeah. perfected it, and I can almost to the point that, where I can't play other games. That's one thing I was a little bit missing of from like, um, like I really liked Shadows Die Twice, but at the same time, it felt like ah, I can't quite customize the character as much as I'd like to, and like, another thing I sort of missed was that the multiplayer aspect, like Dark Souls, especially Dark Souls 3, it's still pretty active where oh, like, I yeah. can go on and I know like the I can go back. The invasions and the co-ops and help somebody. Are so well, I love uh, one of my favorite so things is like fun. going back and helping people beat old bosses and oh, stuff yeah. like that. Like, it's just fun to, you know, interact with people and how you have to kind of communicate through these gestures or leaving little messages is, is really fun. Well, when so, I like, think about my favorite memories, though, from Dark Souls, 
But my favorite memories are those that are the result of encountering other players where recently I got back into it and I was playing through the Dex build and I was a little underpowered to be going into the cathedral area in Dark Souls 3, but I was just screwing around and I got invaded by three people. I was like, fuck. Well, and so I was doing The cathedral area is full of that. Like yeah. as soon as you get past... Yeah. But I was doing my best to stay alive and I was basically running and I was like shooting arrows from a distance and I was taunting them and every once in a while I would kind of run through them. I tried to polish off somebody really, really quickly because that had kind of like a, a burst damage build. And then if it didn't work, I would run, I would keep going and they just kept chasing me and chasing me. I was like basically out of Estes and I was, at, I was on my last leg. And so finally, <laughs> I just out of desperation, caught an elevator going up and they were right behind me. But the host of the invasion, he actually accidentally fell into the hole left behind by the elevator and because he died the other two people died too and got thrown out of the game i was like whoa yeah so basically i beat so three you people get the best like adrenaline brushes in this game like I, I love sometimes in the moments where you're like fighting a boss and it, it's somebody who you know you, you use up all your estes and you're down to like a tiny bar of life and like you could give up but you're like no not today exactly <laughs> you just fight and somehow manage to pull off a win like th- those kinds of moments where your heart's just racing like it's it's such a fun game. I, like, I really love that. I played Bloodborne for the first time not too long ago. Uh, that was really amazing experience as well. Like that's, you know, just as good, if not better than uh, Dark Souls. And like, I know for a lot of people, think, it's their favorite yeah. of the Soulsborne series. Yeah, no, like, and I, I just love that. Like, um, you know, Bram Stoker Lovecraft world is really incredible how it's realized. And I, I think like an open world would really be really cool. Like. One of the best things, though, about Dark Souls is how good some of the level design is. There's one or two duds in there, but, like, overall, just the level construction. You know, if you could have a massive, massive world with that kind of detail in some places, I think that'd be really cool. Or, at a minimum, like an open-world environment where you're exploring landscapes and deserts and mountains and rivers, and then you get to a zone or a base, and once you go inside... Yeah, that's constructed like that. It's like you're in Dark Souls all of a sudden. Like, oh, wow. Now it's like I'm in like a, like a proper zone, a proper you dungeon. Find a dungeon. Whereas or the rest a fortress, is open yeah. world with people interacting or towns, whatever the case might be. But man, they have got my money so hard. Like, whatever they do, <laughs> I'm there opening yeah. day. That's, uh, that's exciting. I'm also planning on getting the uh, new Spider Man game. That, that looks pretty cool to me, too. I haven't played the, um, the PS4 Spider Man game yet, but I think actually once I'm done my Dark Souls binge yet again i might try that game next on my radar i've got cyberpunk cyberpunk 2077 which i'm very oh that looks amazing that looks killer and i've got Baldur's gate 3 on the horizon because it's a one of my all-time favorite gaming franchises basically from on the computer from 20 years ago but i'm 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 an old school D&D freak so there's a lot of stuff on the horizon and also in a year where they're just no fucking movies coming out and everything keeps getting pushed Fuck it. I'm yeah. going to start reviewing video games on my goddamn video YouTube channel. So hopefully, as some of these games start coming our way, you and I can uh, do some live streams and discuss, or at a bare minimum, I, uh, do some co-op and uh, you know, team <laughs> I, up. I would love it. to. I think that'd be great. I would love, uh, you know, once Elden Ring comes out, like that excitement of being able to uh, say, like, oh, like, did you find this out? Or did you beat well, this boss yet? I'm going to buy PS5 kind of to play the, re- yeah. the remake of Demon's Souls. So no matter what, because yes. the big barrier in the years past has been, I'm an Xbox guy, you're a PS4 guy. But yeah. because I, ha- I can only play the revamped uh, Demon's Souls on the PS5, I've got no choice. And so I'm just going to have both mm-hmm. consoles now. So you, you pick the console and we'll team up and we'll make the world rue the day they are thought they might be able to take on Martin Kessler and James Hancock. <laughs> we'll we'll, 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 we'll put on like some, a, a, a level of arrogance appropriate for George Minifer. <laughs> 
Well, Martha Kessler, it's always a divine pleasure talking about any topic, and I love how we can talk about Wells and Dark Souls in the same episode. But in, sure. in a while ago, we talked about possibly doing like a, an episode about John Huston's like acting roles yes. and other people's films, and whether it's I, on I YouTube to do or that, on Wrong yeah. Real. I hope you know any topic. Anytime, I always love shooting the shit with you, and so I, I just want to come up with more excuses for us to collaborate more frequently. Absolutely, I, I would love to be back on uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure again how how this gap of time ended up being so long, but thank you for having me back. This was a wonderful conversation, and uh, I'll be looking forward to the next one. Well, plug time, bitches. Where can people find you? What what can people look forward to in your various podcasting and filmmaking sure. endeavors? Um, at Movie Kessler on Twitter, that's the best place to go if you want to find any more of me. I'm also on Flixwise.com, where I'm doing the uh, Flixwise Canada spinoff podcast. I basically recorded uh, enough episodes for now until the end of the year, so th- there's lots to look forward to. I can only release one a month, but uh, got some really exciting ones coming up. I think the next episode's probably going to be Wait Until Dark about the Audrey Hepburn film. Okay. So... That should be that should be pretty cool and some interesting topics and guests coming down the line. So yeah, people can check that out. There's some great episodes in the back catalog and a lot to look forward to. Beautiful. Well, we hope you all enjoyed this episode. And if you haven't watched Ambersons in a long while, go back and watch it. Whether you care about the history or you don't, it's a remarkable movie. It's a broken film. It's a mangled film, but it's a riveting film nonetheless. Perhaps even more riveting because it's like this broken, beautiful thing. It's like when. Um, what was that giant statue at um, the St. Peter's Basilica at the Vatican that somebody attacked the statue with a hammer? It's almost, and they did their best to fix it and restore it, but it's almost kind of become more beautiful now that you know that this fucking maniac attacked this priceless work of art with a goddamn hammer. And so sometimes these broken, mangled films are uh, all the more pretty as a result. And so maybe at some point you and I should do a a live stream about mangled movies that were taken away sure. from filmmakers. It's a, it's I, like it's a topic uh, I'm always fascinated by. Japanese philosophy of uh, breaking the pots and then gluing them back together because the uh, cracks are beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> the mending abso- is beautiful. Absolutely. There, there's definitely yes. something to it. But if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing to it on whatever platform where you might have found it. And hunt me down on Twitter at Colbrax. You can also check out my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock. Just crossed over into 22,000 subscribers. And I've got a video up talking about season three of Dark, one of my all-time favorite shows. So definitely hunt down that as well. But we can't thank you enough for listening. We greatly appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.